Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. This show is about a tale that has become embellished over time to turn into a local legend. It took place in Cheltenham and in the nearby village of Swindon around the early 1700s. I came across this tale when I was doing research for our last show about the sad death of Alice Woodman and I found it so intriguing and interesting that I thought I'd share it with you. Swindon Village was linked to Cheltenham via a bridge. This bridge is the spot where a local legend was born, a tragedy which gave birth to the history of Maud's Elm. Maud, where are you? Where is my daughter? One night, the inhabitants of Swindon were awoken by the shrieks of an aged and frantic mother who declared that her only child was missing. The missing fugitive was an industrious daughter who had been sent to Cheltenham with some spun wool, the joint work of herself and her mother. Her name was Maud Bowen, the pride of the village, who was around 15 years old and was very, very beautiful. A search was made in vain during the darkness of the night, but at daybreak a sad scene presented itself. In the brook lay the lifeless, naked body of the beautiful Maud, which appeared to have lain there for some time. On the bridge close by, another corpse was discovered. This turned out to be Godfrey Bowen, Maud's uncle on her father's side. An arrow had penetrated his heart, his left hand was still grasping the handrail of the bridge, and in his right hand were some torn fragments of Maud's dress. To quote the opening stanza of a poem by Clinton, Narrating the legend... When night's last shadow had passed away and the crystal drops upon every spray heralded in the blushes of day, a ghastly scene was revealed to the eye that caused the blood from the cheek to eye for the stoutest villager gasped for breath as be wildly bared on the double death. Word of the Week. And due to the witch element in this week's tale, the Word of the Week is... 
bodkin. Now, a bodkin functions like a tweezer to draw elastic cording and so on through tubings and cases when sewing. Old bodkins were shaped like miniature ice picks. And during the witch craze, the story went that when a witch sold her soul in a pact with the devil, the devil would mark her with a spot, a devil's mark. This spot would be insensitive to pain. Inquisitors would check a woman's entire body with the sharp bodkin, hoping to find the devil's mark. Eventually, under extreme pain, people black out. And at this point, the torturer would conclude that the devil's mark had been found. Back in those days, it was customary for the lords of the manor of Cheltenham and Swindon to elect their own coroners, who were generally residents, which enabled justice to be locally administered without delay. The lord of Swindon Manor at once summoned his coroner, and a verdict of fellow de se, the medieval term for suicide, was returned against Maud, who, it was decided, had committed suicide after murdering her uncle. According to custom, the body of the alleged self-murderess was ordered to be buried in the nearest crossroad without Christian burial. This crossroads was at the centre of a spot where four roads branched off, one through Hardwick to Tewkesbury and others to Cheltenham, Cleve and Gloucester. Alas for Maud, a horrible doom, denied her body a Christian tomb, by malice revenge and terrible hate. A coroner's verdict pronounced her fate. They dug her grave on the king's highway, with no kind lips over her corpse to pray. They buried her there in the dead of the night, while the torches flashed their lugrid light. No pool, no coffin, no virgin shroud, no relatives moaning their griefs aloud, no priest to fulfil his mission just. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Was this enough for the vengeful foe? To the wormy bed driven to go? No, not enough for a fearful thing. It's revenge when it burns to leave a sting. Justice was warped and the law defied, and the maiden branded a suicide. A stake was from an elm tree riven, and though the spotless body driven. As the poem says, in accordance with the fashion of the day, an elm stake was driven through the body which allegedly grew into the stately tree, gaining the name of Maud's Elm. As you can imagine, Margaret Bowen, the mother of Maud, was devastated by the death of her affectionate daughter, and her distress was made worse when she was evicted from her freehold cottage, which was seized by the Lord of the Manor, who claimed by virtue of the verdict of the coroner's inquest. The Lord also wanted the property, because, due to the fact that it was freehold, he didn't get an income from it. But once he got hold of it, he could change that. So now, without a home to shelter herself, the distracted mother wandered from house to house in the village, many of whom felt pity for her. But Maud was forever on her mind, and she grew more and more melancholy. At different periods she would go missing, sometimes for up to 12 months, and then she would reappear in the village once again, whose inhabitants she found sympathy with through the many acts of kindness she'd done 
in the past. Over the next few years, a lot happened. Sir Roger Frankton, the Lord of the Manor, married Lady Cecily Delabere, daughter of Sir Stephen Delabere, Lord of Southern, who instantly wasn't keen on the match, as he'd heard the rumours about Roger's crimes. But Sir Roger won them over, and the pair were married. After the ceremony, a huge fate was held for all to join in the celebrations, and as the carriage holding the happy couple passed the crowds lining the route to the fate, Margaret suddenly stood forward from where she'd been waiting, and pointing a finger at the happy couple, she shouted, Woe unto the bridegroom who hath robbed the widow, and again whom the blood of orphan innocence cries to heaven for vengeance. He shall perish, childless and accursed. Woe to the bride, fated to know a mother's sorrow, but not a mother's joy. There was one spot where Margaret could generally be found, and that was at her daughter's grave. The fond mother was there all seasons of the year, shedding tears of grief and watching and watering the elm tree. One morning, while tending her daughter's grave, she saw an unusual procession of carriages and horsemen coming from Swindon. It was Lord of the Manor, Sir Roger Frankton, and his party on their way to Cleve Church to celebrate the christening of his first-born son and heir. The Lord appeared annoyed that Margaret was in his way and asked two of his attendants to go and remove her before the cavalcade passed by. But nothing could move the devoted parent from the last resting place of her daughter, unconsecrated as it was. Orders were then given to forcibly remove Margaret, but... Just as the Lord's attendant went towards her, an arrow struck him in the heart and he fell dead instantly. The arrow came from a thick wood beside the old Gloucester Road, but when they searched for the culprit, no traces of the archer could be found. By the Lord's order, poor Margaret was seized, bound and taken to Gloucester Jail, charged with the twofold crime of murder and witchcraft. During the next two weeks, Margaret was taken to trial, which ended in a verdict of guilty. Not really surprising, as Sir Roger Frankton, the Lord of the Manor, was the prosecutor. <laughs> Word on the street. Today, my friends, we venture forth to Fraser Street in BS3 Bristol. Alfred Kappa Pass son of the founder of Mill Lane Engineering Company, bought most of Windmill Hill, and there, for those that worked in his factories, he built streets of houses. This was one of them. Fraser was his mother's maiden name, and also the name of one of his sons. The judge, in passing sentence, spoke strongly of severely punishing all who practised witchcraft, and ordered her to be burned to death on the precise spot where the Lord's attendant had been shot, which was none other than her daughter's grave. The sentence was carried out to letter on the following morning. The unfortunate Margaret was brought in a simple cart from Gloucester, guarded by officers and seated upon a bundle of straw which was to kindle the flames that were to burn her alive. 
A heap of wood was piled in a circular form, and as Margaret was being led forth to the stake to be tied up, a murmur of pity and of regret ran through the assembled crowd as they watched the sad and emaciated form of one who, in better days, had always acted with kindness and benevolence towards all. The fire had just started taking hold when the solemn silence was broken by the Lord of the Manor, taunting the dying woman for exercising the art of witchcraft. He had not spoken many words before an arrow from an invisible hand pierced him through the throat. He fell from his horse and as he lay there, his attendants tried in vain to take the arrow out but failed. He died at the feet of the burning Margaret. Legend says that when Margaret saw this, she gathered her strength and shouted, Now let me burn, for I have lived to see my maud avenged. When the arrow was finally removed from Roger's throat, it apparently had the words for Roger Frankton engraved on it. Conjecture and speculation were continually at work to clear up the incidents, and the tree, daily growing in size, seemed to stand forth as a living monument of crime and punishment. As the lord of the manor was now dead and there was no heir, his property passed into the hands of strangers, and Margaret Bowen's house was unoccupied and unowned. At the time of his death, the Lord of the Manor, Sir Roger Frankton, had just buried his wife, who had died in childbirth, and also his only son and heir. He was the last of his line, and with him died the family title, and the manorial estate soon passed into the hands of strangers. Many generations have come and gone since he met with his well-merited death. His name and pedigree, as if by way of retribution, perished with him. Over 50 years had elapsed since the execution at Maud's Elm, when the villagers were surprised at finding a stranger, spending a large portion of the day beneath the album, and also living during the night in the decayed dwelling of the reputed witch. Above the grave of hapless Maud, the young elm tree began to show, limbs and proportions strong and broad, while from the stately body grew, branches and leaves that shadowed over, the root, so long baptised in gore. Beneath that fresh-limbed young elm tree, the unknown stood, and as he gazed, the scene around, his eye was glazed, his careworn spirit seemed to flee, to days long vanished, and his frame shook like an aspen when the wind of autumn blows upon the rind. Old age was dead, and he became a living youth again. He threw his hat and staff upon the ground, and kneeling near the elm tree, drew a sight from sorrow's cell profound. A tear upon his pale cheeks strayed, while this he mourned the Swindon maid. The man looked to be around 80 years old, and many of the villagers did ask him what he was doing there. And after he gave his reply, they welcomed him into their community and left him in peace. And it's his tale that was published in Tewkesbury around 1800 under the title A True Lation of Maud's Elm, 
but the work is hard to find. You see, the occupier of Margaret Bowen's cottage was, in fact, the hero of most of the remarkable events connected with her history. And he cleared up all the mystery surrounding the tree and the events that occurred. His name was Walter Lee, and his birthplace was Swindon Village. From his earliest years, he had loved Maud Bowen, and she loved him. He was so skilled in the use of the bow and arrow that his nickname was Walter the Archer. The story, according to Walter, was that Godfrey Bowen, Maud's uncle, who was found shot on the bridge, was a greedy man, and he wanted possession of the freehold house, which would revert to his niece at the mother's death, and so he proposed to Maud. But she refused, because she was in love with someone else. And no sooner had poor Maud escaped from this trial than she found herself in a much worse situation, because the lord of the manor, Roger Frankton, quite fancied her himself and wanted to make her his mistress. Maud said no way, and so, finding he couldn't persuade her, the lord employed Uncle Godfrey to kidnap her, promising to give him the house that Maud and her mother lived in. Godfrey was eager for the gold payment he'd get for delivering Maud, as well as the future prospect of possession of the family freehold. So he agreed. On the night when Maud went missing, Walter was part of the search party. He took up his bow and arrows and searched everywhere, almost despairing of finding her when he heard the sudden shrieks of a female. It was dark, but he could discern the forms of Maud struggling with her uncle Godfrey and the Lord of the Manor were standing by, watching. And so Walter drew his bow and shot Godfrey dead on the end of the bridge where his body was found. Now free, Maud fled, and Walter hoped that she had reached her house safely. What he didn't know is that she'd fallen into the water and drowned. The Lord, meanwhile, was fleeing in the opposite direction. And so Walter... Fearing prosecution for murder, if discovered, and knowing how revengeful the Lord was, fled, and no traces of him were found until he returned to the scene of his early youth. He hadn't lived that far away, though, but on the nearby main road to Gloucester, in Hayden, under an assumed name, and he'd kept an inn, the house in the tree, which is still there, where he lived in the fondly cherished hope of one day seeing the guilty punished. Due to where he was living, he could soon learn all that was going on in the Swindon village. It was here that Maud's mother, Margaret, would go when she wasn't in her village, and Walter would always protect her. And so when Margaret went to her daughter's grave, Walter wasn't very far away, watching her from the bushes, making sure she was safe and he was the one who shot the arrows which killed both the Lord and his attendant, and got some revenge on those who had deprived him of Maud. Thus, Walter had lived to see the author of his woes come to an untimely end. The wish was granted Walter Gray, in Swindon lived for many a day, and oft a tear would cloud his eye, and oft his breast would heave and sigh. When he recounted perils over, that girt him on a distant shore, when he the saddened tale would tell of what the Swindon maid befell. 
Walter lived for three years in Maud's old house, and when he died, he was buried in the northeast corner of the churchyard, a plain low stone placed at the head of his grave with the inscription, Walter Lee, the archer. Back then, Cheltenham was a quaint and obscure village, but it has grown immensely, with new roads and buildings added to accommodate its expanding population. So there's not really very much you can find from that period in time. Maud's Elm stood in its original position, a majestic monument, until 1906, when it was taken down for public safety. Here is an old rhyme regarding the tree and its importance in local life before it was felled. Each year the Swindon maidens bound a votive wreath the grave around and ever on the 1st of May, the sad recurrent of the day, when Margaret and Maud were both made martyrs onto fiendish wrath, they met and sang this simple lay, twine a wreath for the dead in her lowly bed, gather the fairest towers that bloom to weave a garland of rich perfume and solemnly let the token be laid on the hallowed grave of the Swindon maid. The snowdrop bring, one herald of spring, the pimpernel and the thistledown, lustrous gems of every hue, glistening with morning dew, cull to embellish our floral crown. Sadly, the tragic tale of Maud Bowen, her mother and Waterlee, are not unique. Often in the past, squires, lords and bishops raped young peasant girls, dispossessed lone women of their homes, and ruined the lives of ordinary people, safe in the knowledge that they had the backing of the law, the crown and the church. The only defence that the ordinary people had against these monsters were often the spells of the local wise man or woman, and the bravery and courage of people like Walter Lee. I came across this particular tale when I was doing research for the last show about the death of Alice Woodman, and it's all started with a tree, Maud's arm, which was cut down in 1906, because it was in such a poor state. Even though a Mr F. F. Wheeler had tried to protect the trunk with railings, in an attempt to stop children from climbing its enormous branches. In the end, a particularly vicious thunderstorm brought about the end of the tree. When lightning struck and one great arm of the tree, that was pointing towards Swindon village, collapsed, falling with a crash into the roadway. But fortunately, no one was hurt as it was shortly before 10 on a Saturday night. The fallen limb was about 50 feet in length and some 4 feet in diameter. Very heavy, about 6 tons. The railings around the tree took the brunt of the impact. Examination of the portion of the tree left standing showed that its removal was necessary in the interests of public safety and the work of demolition was, according to instructions, to have been carried out by means of a traction engine. They planned, if possible, to leave about seven feet of the trunk as a memorial. Due to the legend of Maud's Elm, it became a bit of a local celebrity and many people would come from far and wide to see it. One ardent admirer of this noble member of the forest was the Duchess of Devonshire, and she could be seen there daily during her residence in the town, taking a seat and reading her favourite authors beneath the shade of its foliage. 
And it was during one of these daily visits that a little boy who had been in charge of the horses attracted the Duchess's attention. Struck with the intelligent expression of Constance in the youth, so young and destitute, Her Grace accosted him and presented a donation. To return this mark of kindness, the nine-year-old boy told the Duchess of the origin of Maud's Elm. The Duchess was so struck by the recital that she adopted the child and educated him, and he became a visitor to Devonshire House. Her Grace in later life gave him capital on several occasions to help him set up in business, but he liked to spend money, and one minute he was up and next minute he was very, very down. He eventually died in Cheltenham in 1844, and his name was Miles Watkins, and his nickname was the King of the Cheltenham Royal Family. In 1840, the Duke of Devonshire, during his visit, had a drawing of the elm made as a memento of his mother, and finding that Miles Watkins was still alive at that time, 70 years old, he gave him some money to enable him to live comfortably in his declining years. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled and settle back to enjoy a selection of 100% spoiler-free book reviews. Whether you're a fan of cosy mysteries, horror, romantic comedies, science fiction or anything else you might find on the bookcase, Being Bookish is a great place to start. Join me, your host Ray, as I take a joyride through the books on my bookshelves and journey into new territories with recommendations every week. You may even hear a few interviews with authors along the way. Find every episode of Being Bookish wherever you find your podcasts. In the news today, a man has declared that when he dies, he wants his ashes pressed into a record. It was his vinyl request. Back in the day facts. And let's start with the 24th of June 1981, when the Humber Bridge opens to traffic, connecting Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. It remained the world's longest bridge span for 17 years. On the 25th of June 1944, the United States Navy and British Royal Navy ships bombarded Cherbourg to support United States Army units engaged in the Battle of Cherbourg. Also on the 25th of June, but in 1975, Barry White releases Can't Get Enough of Your Love, Babe. The 26th of June 1906 sees the first Grand Prix motor race, which is held in Le Mans. Commonly known as the 1906 French Grand Prix, it was a motor race held on public roads which were closed outside the city of Le Mans. The Grand Prix was organised by the Automobile Club de France at the request of the French automobile industry as an alternative to the Gordon Bennett races, which limited each competing country's number of entries, regardless of the size of its industry. At the time, France had the largest automobile industry in Europe, and in an attempt to better reflect this, 
the Grand Prix had no limit to the number of entries by any particular country. On the 27th of June, 1556, the 13 Stratford Martyrs are burned at the stake near London for their Protestant beliefs. The 28th of June, 1880, Australian bushranger Ned Cully is captured at Glenabroan. Ned was an Australian bushranger, outlaw, gang leader and convicted police murderer. One of the last bushrangers, he is known for wearing a suit of bulletproof armour during his final shootout with the police. On the 29th of June 1888, George Edward Gourard records Handel's Israel in Egypt onto a phonograph cylinder, thought for many years to be the oldest known recording of music. And lastly, the 30th of June 1934 sees the Night of the Long Knives, Adolf Hitler's violent purge of his political rivals in Germany. I'm afraid, as the bunny says, that's all, folks. But don't worry, I'll be here, same time, same place, next week. And for this particular episode, my thanks goes out to Rose Hales and Samantha Roberts for bringing this story to life. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 